Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling more confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TVD Conference. The theme this season is the real future of work. What's really going on with the world of work under the hood? What's changing? What's not being said? We're checking assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I spoke with an amazing array of people from Dan Pink to Harvard University professors, TikTok superstars, data specialists and generational experts, all live on Twitter spaces. What follows is a recording of that space, so it's more conference call than podcast booth. Sponsors are incredibly important to me, and I am proud to say Ecology are back, and they planted a tree for every live listener we had. We're over 15,000 trees in the TBD forest now, and you can start planting your own over at ecology.com. That's spelled E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com. Workplace by Meta also came on board this season. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways and whatever you bring to work to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very, very cool indeed. Make sure you never miss a moment of Mouthwash by signing up for the newsletter over at mouthwashshow.com. And you can also get a text alert over at mouthwash.norby.live. Very handy for busy people. Check out all those links in the description too. As with all good podcasts, please share it on a network you trust and leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD Conference. The conference, attendees say, is like Ted without the bullshit. We're flipping it up this season. We're live on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursdays. You get the same amount of mouthwash just spread over the middle of the week. It's a reflection of our times and changing and changing really the world we work in, uh, which is our theme this season for mouthwash, the real world of work. This season, we're exploring what's working, what's not. We're checking assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I want to know what's really going on under the surface, where it's all going and how we're going to get there. I have an amazing cohort of people joining me this season from multiple best-selling authors like Dan Pink to brand new startups who are creating new models for the metaverse. I'm also discussing the future with experts from Harvard University, behavioral psychologists to TikTok superstars. You can check out the full lineup and previous episodes of Mouthwash over at mouthwashshow.com. And I'm really proud to say that we are sponsored again this season, this time by the wonderful folks over at Workplace by Meta. Whatever you bring to the workplace uh, to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways and to make your place of work a great place to work, you can visit workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very cool stuff indeed. Um, Most people haven't seen it, so I urge you to try it out. Ecology are also back uh, to plant a tree for every live listener in the TBD forest. We're at over 1,300 trees at the moment. Sorry, 13,000, even more. Uh, If you are looking to reduce your or your business's carbon footprint, head over to ecology.com and you can start planting your forest. So that's ecology.com, E-C-O-L-O-G-I.com. So good time to share the space, I think. If you click the round blue plus button in the bottom right-hand side of your screen, you'll tell the world that you found something good. Everyone that you get into the space means another tree in the world, and I think you'll agree that's no bad thing right now. Okay, joining me tonight from London is Tim Alban, founder and CEO of Leesman Index, or Leesman generally, uh, the world's foremost authority on employee workplace experience. Starting out as a transport designer, then an independent workplace advisor, Tim now runs Leesman, uh, which enables global organisations to support employees and get the most out of them. Uh, considered industry thought leaders around the world, Leesman measures, benchmarks and improves the experience for employees using the index, uh, some other tools and other methods that they have. And their clients are the tiny people at BHP, Ericsson, Coca-Cola, Honeywell, BG, uh, BCG, just to name a few. They have hundreds of others. 
Leesman have the largest employee homeworking uh, experience benchmark data set, that's a mouthful, of its kind. So no season that wants to talk about the future of work should be without them. Um, that's why I asked them to do today. Uh, welcome to Mouthwash, Tim. What was the first thing that you thought of when you woke up today? First thing I thought of today, um, what was the weather doing outside? Um, I think it's the, it's the latest trend, isn't it? If it's raining, you work from home. Oh, is it? Is that what the data says? <laughs> well, not our data, but I think anecdotally, that's the feedback we're getting. Definitely. Well, me, the push me for me between office and home is, <laughs> uh, I think, increasingly weather dependent. Oh, interesting. I wonder if there will be data to support that. I, I mean, retroactively, you could certainly look at it, I guess, recently, couldn't you? Yeah. Um, this season's all about the future of work. What's your current situation when it comes to work? Obviously, when the weather's great. Uh, are you back to the office or have you built a new office or did you never have an office? Uh, we've always had offices, and I, I would say that uh, you know that, that Leesman will always have offices in the future. I don't see us as a, a totally um, uh, location-independent uh, organisation. I think the value of being together, especially for some of our younger team members, is invaluable. I don't think you could, not even the best surveys in the world could measure the value proposition of that, those moments that matter when we're together, and uh, things just happen, right? Sparks happen when you're in somebody else's company, and um, you, you overhear things. I think that value... Uh, I'm not saying that we need it five days a week. Um, we don't need it, you know, 20 odd working days a month. But I think there is value in that, nevertheless. Oh, we are going to pick over all of what you've just said uh, and a lot more um, over the next uh, hour, I think. Um, what's been your biggest learning, though, over the last two to three years? I'm, I'm not sure I could pinpoint a single learning. I think one thing that the, the pandemic has taught us and, and, and everybody around us is that, um, you know, the, the, the sad indictment uh, is that of, of corporate workplaces pre-pandemic is that the average home has supported the average worker better than the average office. So I think I think there's been a big slap in the face for the real estate industry, for the architects and designers. And, you know, we've been suggesting that for some time in the pre-pandemic data. But now we've got, you know, nearly 300,000 employees have told us what their home working experience is like. And frankly, for a lot of them, it's better than the corporate workplaces that they come from. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the big thing as well that I keep seeing. The, the, the corporate world of work was broken and no one seemed to be bothered about fixing it. It took a pandemic for people to go, oh, wait, is this box not great? We thought it was, you know, and I'm not 100% sure whose fault that was. But I definitely am starting to hear some really sort of like scary stories about people being forced back to offices and that. So I'd like to talk about that. But before we do, tell me a bit more about Leesman. Why did you start it and um, what does it look like today? Like how many employees you have? Yeah, so so honest answer is um, probably what fourteen years or so ago now I accidentally tripped over to um, effectively sort of consulting tools. One was a, a Myers Briggs personality preferencing uh, indicator that um, it was strongly advised that I should do in order to understand my sort of corporate strengths and susceptibilities. Um, I pushed back the idea of a you know thirty minute multiple choice questionnaire telling my employer who I was. I found quite disgusting, but it was one of those sort of situations. Do the damn survey. Um, or, or, you know, don't don't progress through the organisation. So having done it and seen the results, I was I was pretty intrigued, to be honest. And then a little while later, again, accidentally tripped over a, uh, a process diagnostic called Lean Six Sigma, um, most used in manufacturing and, and sort of industrial design. And in a moment, just saw the opportunity to crash these two tools together to measure, if you like, the personality of an organisation and how well its infrastructure supported that organization in its journey. And, and that was the seed of, of uh, the tool that we're still selling, you know, more than 12 years later. Um, the, honest, the honest truth is, that, you know, mad evening with a friend who said, why don't you just sell the consulting tool and stop doing the consulting? 
Um, and that really was the birthing point for, for Leesman as, a, uh, a, as it stands today, that, that idea of a globally independent and accessible non-advisory benchmark. So, and, and that's what we've been doing ever since. Very cool. Um, so you have, as you mentioned, lots of data and you give out a lot of data on your website. Um, with all your data, is it the perfect working environment that you've got? How do you practice what you preach? What, what do you still have to fix? <laughs> yeah, my, my team often remind me that we haven't done the survey for a while on ourselves. It's, um, yeah, we are, we are the proverbial workplace cobblers. Um, we have, since day one, used um, what I think generically was best praised as the offices of service providers, um, often referred to as the co-working space solution providers. So um, we're now with a company called The Office Group. We've been with them for, for quite some time now. And for me, one of the best providers in, in the London marketplace. Um, and the flexibility that's given us as we've expanded you know, dramatically in 18 and 19. And then you know, that, that rapid growth was somewhat halted at the start of 2020 for, for reasons we all know. Um, the flexibility and the agility that that gives us as an organization um, in hyper growth phase has, has been you know, invaluable. And the, um, you know, Charlie and Ollie, the founders of the office group, should be applauded, I think, for the efforts that they went to also to support their tenants, many of whom, like us, were in that sort of mature startup phase. So we were businesses, we had turnovers, we had profitable bottom lines, um, but we were also small and trying to be agile. And I think, uh, you know, congratulations to the two of them, applause, because the, the flexibility that they gave us to downsize as we needed to at very short notice, um, you know, is the thing that keeps us loyal to that marketplace, if you like. Yeah, very much so. They're um, just about to join with Fora, um, the exactly. luxury co-working people. So I'm sure there will be many co uh, champagne corks being popped in their future. Um, I want to talk a bit about co-working later, but let's stick on the index for a sec. You've already um, broken out homeworking. Um, what's the early indicator? Uh, here to stay forever or just for the first five years and then people will be back to the office? I'm hearing lots of scary headlines, but what's your data telling everyone? I think I think the first thing is is check out who the scary headlines are coming from because I think lots of those headlines come from people with a vested interest in pitching a scary headline at the you know global heads of real estate who are really I think the linchpins or also the, the global heads of human resources and whatever new nomenclature they give that you know that team within a corporate body but I think what we've got to look at is the the fundamental basics that um, for very many knowledge based workers the home is a better place to support maybe two-thirds of the typical things they would do in a, in a, in a knowledge-based employees working week. And a lot of that comes down to acoustic privacy. Um, and, and that's the one thing that if you wanted to put, you know, point a finger at one aspect of the corporate workplace design, it's the one thing that's been neglected, if you like, over the last five to 10 years, and is the sufferance, therefore, of many knowledge-based workers who pre-pandemic were somewhat expected to be workplace-based or corporate office-based for five days a week. The flip side of that, is in most organizations, you would expect to see perhaps a third of employees actually don't have a space at home that adequately supports them working remotely. So you've got this sort of push me, pull me effect that's, uh, that's happening within most organizations, which means in my view, the office certainly isn't dead. Um, but equally, I would expect you know, large numbers of employees to be extensively home-based for a long time to come. Let's stick on um, remote working. Just over one in three people don't seem to have the right chair at home. You know, it's simple sort of stuff like that. 
is this something that could drastically improve things for um, workplaces, if that makes sense? So like, you know, they're getting a good score. Is that the one thing to motivate people the most? Or does your data sort of show what, what how um, perks have changed and people's attitudes towards different uh, packages have changed? I think the, you know, the idea that a, a free margarita pizza on Monday or a fajita on a Friday will pull people back to offices is not the good place to start. I think also, you know, equally just trying to, you know, put a Band-Aid on the, um, you know, the poor accommodation that somebody might be tussling with at home. You know, if you're if you're early in your career stage, you're maybe in a house share with, you know, five or six other ex-university mates and you've got one kitchen table in a shared kitchen about two foot square. You know, nobody's got the right accommodation to work remotely if that's that's what their domestic situation is. And if you think about the sort of the mental impact of that employee effectively sleeping, working, maybe occasionally not eating, but then sleeping again on a sort of continuous cycle um, it, it, at home. I, I just think the mental wellness for that is, a, is an error that certainly I'm, you know, and, and my management team are very concerned about for our younger employees. And that for us, why, you know, is why when it was safe to do so, seeing them back in office, learning from those who are further into their career stages, you know, being invited to events where perhaps previously they wouldn't necessarily been automatically uh, invited. I think that's the critical aspect of that remote, um, you know, that, that one third of the population um, who might ergonomically struggle. It's not just the ergonomics. It's it's, it's just about the sort of, I don't know, the, the, the isolation that exists in that uh, remote location if you're one of those types of early career starters. I guess that that sort of statement depends on the friendship group and the mental strength of those individuals, which I guess is something that they may or may not learn when they were at the office or surrounded by peers. You know, um, how much do you think that that is, you know, suffering? Like, do you what, what's the data behind it? Are people like 20 points down on what they were or, you know, what what's the, the, the range? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to pluck a figure from the air because I think it, it does change organisation to organisation and some of them. Um, you know, quite dramatically. I think it's, it, I, I was asked this question at an event last week, actually, about, you know, who's who's doing the best to mitigate some of these types of risks. And I think if I were to generalise, what I would say is that the fast-moving organisations pre-pandemic have just got faster and got better at doing everything that's needed to do, I, I, I hate to choose a word, but, you know, like sort of agile, they're doing flexible, they're doing remote mix and office mix the best. And those organizations who were slow moving pre-pandemic, you know, a lot of them, I think, are still in a sort of decision paralysis phase. We saw, you know, large numbers of employees, uh, sorry, respondents in a recent poll that we conducted, still classifying themselves as being in the early stages of considering what their physical workplace futures look like. Like, you know, you, you do feel like saying, guys, we're two years into this. You know, if you're still unsure... It's about time you got sure because the, you know, the uncertainty that that's breeding within employees, I think, is a real risk. And there's so much talk of the, you know, the great resignation. But I think if, if, if you're remotely anxious about your future career role within an organisation, and the organisation can't even tell you what your future place, um, you know, strategies or their place strategy is going to look like, I think it just breeds doubt in the leadership quality of the organisation. That's something I would like to talk about as well. A lot of these sort of stories, when it comes back to um, remote workers being less productive or mentally, un well, let's not say unstable, but damaged, um, just really say to me is like, where's your HR program? 
who's leading that company? What's happening with your managers? How have you retrained them? And they go, we've done no retraining, you know, or anything like that. Has this just, has this whole experience just shown us that the the modern organisation just doesn't have the basics right? Um, I, again, I, I think that would be an unfair criticism to, to level as a sort of generalisation. I think there are, yeah, we, we're working with a number of clients. I could I could name a few who are probably you know out there way in advance in terms of their communication style, their clarity of communication, uh, their their humility with the uh, you know with their communication style, um, and 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 those are those sort of fast movers that I'm talking about. Those who, you know, came out perhaps within about four months, five months of the pandemic starting in twenty, um, with a you know with a with a, a, a clear roadmap in front of them that said this is what we're going to do. We might get it wrong. We might have to change the course, but based on our knowledge today, this is what we're going to set out for. And I think that clarity and sort of humility that that those employees saw within those organisations of their leadership, saying, "Do you know what? This is unprecedented. You know, we didn't. There was no training for this. Nobody coached us in what to do in this type of circumstance. And this is what, as a team, we have decided is the future." I think in those organisations, all employees, top to bottom, have thought, "Do you know what?" At least they've said something, let's get on board or let's get off board and go elsewhere. But at least you can make that sort of conscious binary decision as an employee based on what your leadership is telling you. If the leadership says nothing, then I think you're in a sort of zone of, of you know, real sort of doubt. Whether that is, you know, I don't think you can pin that necessarily just on HR or just on property or on any other sector of the business. I think that comes down to the, you know, the leadership right from the top of the pyramid downwards. And if that leader can't be clear then I think you've got space for all sorts of people to feel very uncertain about their futures. Mm, I've seen some absolute disasters um, when it comes to external and internal comms during the pandemic. One of the things that certainly uh, rings true was very sort of tone deaf statements um, around things like uh, working hours, working too hard, you know, mental health and that sort of thing. And I wonder if... um, there's lessons to be learned from the communication style overseas. What um, uh, differences are you seeing geographically across the world when it comes to the index? Um, again, it's it's so much more down to organisation than geography, and and you know suggesting that you know the you know perhaps in North America something is done differently, or in you know Southeast Asia we're seeing a different trend. I don't I don't think it would be fair to pin that on any one factor if you're you know, if if you're one of our Southeast Asian retail banks, and you know, large swathes of your employees are either in you know highly densified city centre locations, and the and the other employees are in you know very rural, multi generational houses in you know far away from your corporate offices. But in North America, you know, you've got heaps of space, but everybody's in the car for an hour and fifty minutes in each direction, and and you know, you've got more cash in the bank than common sense there. It, it, it's it's about the organisational culture, I think, rather than the fact that one team might be US based and another might be in another geography in the world. So um, that 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 sort of you know that those and there's so much press around this, right? You know that that suddenly you know corporate workplaces in the general media, not just the trade media. Um, but I, I I do shudder each time I see one of those generalisations that blames any one factor. It's 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 way more nuanced and way more complex when you look at it at an individual organisation level. No, definitely. But I think there's an argument to be said that there are a, a group of organisations or industry based that are just better at some things when it comes to being good organisations or not. They have smarter people, different sort of plays, or they spend more money on doing things like external comms or internal comms. 
one of the things I think I'm most interested in when it comes to the sort of future world of work is the the, the trust issue and productivity. Um, I think your data said that 63% say that they are more productive at home. Um, but are they, though? Um, ha have you got any data to support uh, that assumption? Yeah, so if, if we get a bit geeky for a moment, because we love the, the big P word, you know, it, it comes up in any dialogue or any conversation with any client or at any uh, any of these sorts of uh, events that we do. Um, first off, I would say be very careful around productivity. And and I just have to call it out whenever I hear it. But I was on a call again last week where somebody said, we've seen productivity increase by 20%. They're like, okay, how are you measuring that? Well, we're measuring how many hours people are online. Okay, more hours is not equating to higher productivity. Productivity is a ratio of input versus output. If an employee is giving you more hours, that does not make them more productive. That just gives them, you know, there's more discretionary effort. They're giving you more dial-in time. It doesn't mean that they're, uh, they're you know, the, the, the location has made them um, more successful in, in producing the outputs that you employ them to employ. And then in terms of um, greater productivity, we don't ask employees to tell us where they're more productive. What we are doing is asking employees to tell us the extent to which the space and the infrastructure they have enables them to work more productively. And you're right in the number there is, a, there is a higher number of employees who would say that their home work setting enables them to work productively than would the office. So, you know, that's that's why, you know, that, that sort of slightly tabloidish headline I gave you that the average home supports the average employee better than the average office. That's the that's the hard fact. So is that sorry, just to drill down on that, is that that they feel they are more productive at home or that they're actually giving more output like yeah, based well, on? No, no, you're right to challenge it. And I think this is this is an area where we should drill in. We we don't, if we're being absolutely, you know, on point, we don't, we can't, I can't give you an answer to that um, because that's down to every organization to measure the output of the employee. Um, there is no universal measure of productivity. That's the first problem, right? So when we designed the tool back in 2009, 2010, the closest we, feel we uh, felt we could get was that simple question, you know, to what extent do you agree or disagree with the following statement? My workplace enables me to work productively. And, and that's why, you know, the majority of our clients are corporate real estate, facility management, HR type professionals, because they're trying to benchmark the extent to which the surroundings and the equipment provided, both soft and, you know, digital equipments, um, enable that employee to do the job they're employed to do, to be the best version of themselves. And currently, you know, more employees will tell us they can be productive in their homework setting that they've crafted for themselves than can office-based employees. Talking about um, office-based employees, um, again, headlines, but also there's data that says male-dominated firms want people to return to the office. Um, what's that telling us? Does it show power struggles, ego-led decision-making is rife, all of the above and more? Obviously, you know, it's hard for you to be... Uh, anything other than general um, and that sort of stuff, because you, you can't give out other people's data. But how do companies realize they're making that choice and if they need to remedy it? I think it, it's being very conscious about the, you know, the ingestion of information and data. You know, many surveys of different types and different feedback loops are available. But the, the data that we have um, been collecting through the pandemic um, is changing longitudinally. Um, so um, gender is not a principal driver of, uh, of, of change. So we don't see dramatic differences between genders. Um, if we're to look at the whole data set, you know, horizontally, um, where we are seeing a greater change, actually, and quite dramatic change, 
is in the age range of the responder. Um, so initially, it was the uh, younger demographics who were keener to return to office. That has almost completely pivoted around. So now the younger generation are the least likely to lean back into returning, whereas the uh, you know those in the in the later years uh, of their careers are the most likely to want to return. So those are the types of things where we're saying, look, you know, this experiment has not yet finished. Overly cautionary here in terms of you know reading the headlines and and, and thinking about what the story is behind it. But um, on the genders, I'd, I'd be very very cautious. I think there's some uh, some some big you know. Big headlines and, uh, and 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 not necessarily in our data any substance. That mm. said, just one little one little interesting though, just to sort of go off the sort of detail of the of the data for a second. I, I was with a publisher a couple of weeks ago, and uh, one thing they have seen is that they've had more uh, more manuscripts, more submissions from male authors during the pandemic than they had prior. Um, so more men working at home, perhaps without their superiors watching over their shoulders, are finding time to. Uh, Finish those uh, finish those manuscripts, and and that has been a general reduction in the number of uh, of drafts submitted by female authors. So I think that's where you've got to look at each industry and each segment and sector and and, and analyze its data for what it is. Oh, I'm sure there's some mums listening who will challenge you on um, who's parenting and that sort of stuff. I've seen data <laughs> on, on to argue both of those. Um, you mentioned something quite interesting there. It sort of it sounded like an inflection point where young people were the ones wanting to uh, go back to the office. And then if they've had a taste of it, have they stopped? What, what's what's done that switch? Well, we're not sure. And actually, it's, uh, it's a really good progression. We're, we're going to try and examine in much more detail over the next sort of three to six months. My, my team have got a meeting later this week to try and really start to think about what variables that we can we can look at to verify where this inflection point may have come from. There's lots of, amongst the clients we're working with, there are lots of hypotheses that are being knocked around. We can't test or verify them at the moment, but it's it's what we're going to perhaps seek to, to understand more deeply. But things like, you know, the cost of the commute. Um, we're doing a, a detailed research study for Lendlease, the Australian headquartered developer at the moment. And, and one of the phrases that uh, the, the very brilliant Natalie Slesser has, has pitched to us there is, um, you know, the organisation having to earn the commute. You've got to, you know, you've got to create a compelling reason for the employee to want to come back to the office. So there's almost a sort of turnaround of that sort of, you know, the push me, pull me is the employer pulling you back, not not compelling you, not not forcing you, but making it so that actually, you know, when you head to bed of an evening, you are willingly setting the alarm clock for a 6 a.m. alarm call so that you can be in the office for, for 8.45, rather than setting your alarm clock for 8 a.m. to be at your desk at home for 8.45. So I think that that sense of what is the what is the payback, you know, what is the compensation um, for that employee making that journey in each morning? What are they getting for it? That's I think mm. where we're going to be heading to look more closely at those types of those types of factors. Definitely interesting. A nice segue, actually. Let's go because you you flipped what I wanted to talk about. I was going to talk about remote working last, but we did it first. But that's fine. Um, let's talk about the office. People are going back. Some always wanted it. Some need to be back. You know, and that sort of thing. Um, what makes the perfect and it's and it kind of answers the last question what makes the perfect office what brings people back just generally i know everybody's different google gives a ton of food out some people give you a sweater vending machine generally speaking what's the baseline that a company needs to do in order to be a good company that people want to actually enter a door of well i i think if i weren't the eternal optimist then i was a bit more sort of uh, you know uh, um looking at things from the other direction or 
you know, pessimistically sort of depressive, I would say that um, it's really flipping simple, you know, how to create an amazing workplace. It's so simple, blindingly simple. You can't really understand why more organizations don't actually manage to pull it off. It is simply this, is understand what your employees do and give them everything they need to do it well. And I think if, you, if you've got the time, the sensitivity, the empathy to understand the, you know, the granular nature of an employee's day at work, and you think carefully about all of the tools that you can provide them with, be they physical or digital, that would enable them to do that as best they possibly can, then do you know what comes out of the end of that equation is employees who love their workplaces, who report high productivity, high sense of community, uh, high value for the brand of the organization. So it's really not that hard. It's There's no sort of secret source in this. There's an element of secret source around sort of things like brand and and, uh, and a sort of, you know, intrinsic sense of purpose that you do see shine out more brightly in certain organizations. But generally speaking, it's as simple as that. Understand what your employees do, give them everything they need as best you can to enable them to be the best versions of themselves. And it normally delivers really simply around that type of equation. So that's interesting because that um, equation could obviously have a financial element to pretty much everything you've just said. Um when 88% of people favour working from the office, sometimes according to the Understanding Society COVID-19 survey, um, getting the office right is a big problem to fix. It's an expensive one as well. Certainly at the moment when you have four walls, long leases, and probably very little inclination to do it other than, you know, that's when I think people force people to come back. How do you recommend managers and leaders make the case for spending more on the physical environments? Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't sort of try and give any generalized recommendation. What I would say is look at one of our amazing clients, Standard Chartered Bank. So they're a, they're a UK headquartered bank, but all of their retail operations, retail banking operations are in uh, Asia, Southeast Asia um, and the US. Um, Standard Chartered came out very early with a very simple proposition that by 2025 or thereabouts, um, they would offer twice the experience that an employee had uh, previous prior to the pandemic but that they would operate in half the space. Now, there's some nuances around that uh, once you get into the detail, but they've just really simply done some very basic maths, that if you reduce your office footprint, you can reinvest in the experience that the employee has when they come there. So they want to come to the office because it's an amazing place to be. It supports them brilliantly. It supports a sense of community and shared learning and uh, you know common purpose. And you believe in the brand because it's investing in your needs. And so I think if you look at what Standard Chartered and others like that, Cisco, I'm working with personally um, with their property leadership team doing some incredible stuff, different, but still based on that sort of proposition that it is about money. But why have we always approached it from the lowest cost wins when organizations go out to market in terms of providing those, uh, you know, those daily experiences for employees? So we have another client who is desperately trying to work out how they could go to the market for their facility management services. So all of the sort of, you know, what I would call the daily lubrication for, for a corporate workplace after the architects and designers have finished. Uh, they, they're trying to work out how they could go to the market basically with a tender that says, give me the best possible experience for employees you dare under the, the terms of this tender and tell me how much it is. The lowest price will still probably win. But what we want you to do, rather than coming at it from a shaving everything down to its minimum possible you know, compliance level and pricing that. Take it from an opposite spectrum. Think about what is you know, the best you can offer that you think we will buy and price it. And I think it's going to take a few maverick decisions like that 
to really sort of reappraise whether what the industry has been doing for the last 15 or 20 years has actually ended up in a sort of downward spiral to the lowest possible common denominator. Whereas actually, if you approach it differently and you think about experience first, you would approach it from the opposite. You'd approach it from the five-star hotel spectrum direction, not from the sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the corner store uh, mentality of uh, how much can you rack up in there and charge the highest price for. So how do we, how do we balance that? I'm not sure. But I think it's great for us to be hanging around with some of the organisations who are looking at it differently. Mm, definitely. I think you're going to be first to sort of know what's certainly working for these larger companies and how it filters down for smaller ones. Um, I think it was Bruce Daisley who said it recently. Um, instead of I'm out of the office, they're going to start doing emails. I'm in the office and then find interesting reasons and sort of the, the must attend meetings. Do you think that's... Uh, fair to sort of say when people sort of figure out what their surroundings will be or do you think that will come before then well i think i think bruce and i are always at risk of um vehemently agreeing with each other to the to the point where it becomes boring for for an audience but um i think i think bruce is onto something but i think it's probably way over the horizon that, that you'd be looking at that at uh, that level or maybe just with the super advanced organizations that bruce is fortunate enough to have been with and, and still hang out around um there are some doing that um but I think what we have to overcome in the in most organisations first is a really simple dichotomy between that the 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 um, the meeting of mixed media, if you like, you know, where you've got some participants virtually and some participants participants physically. The technology is not there yet. The physical room designs are not that yet uh, not uh, there yet in the uh, in the office settings, and I'm not sure that the remote. Uh, participants for those meetings are getting any better experience than the people who've journeyed into the, the corporate workplace to have them. So I think we've got some, you know, quite really basic operational pinch points to get through first before we can look to an age where the offsite actually is the onsite and the, you know, the onsite is at home. So. Mm. Okay. Um, let's shift up a notch. So um, surveillance tech, uh, think like keystroke monitoring and that sort of thing is at an all-time high spending-wise around the world. Um, to what degree do you agree with the statement that COVID's shown us one thing: companies don't trust their employees? Um, yeah, really interesting. Well, let, let, let's um, I suppose add some sort of chronological perspective to this. In February 2020, I think probably if you push me into a corner and you'd asked me for a statement, I'd have probably agreed with the statement you've just made. Um, but somewhere about the end of March last year, something really weird happened, that employees who weren't trusted in February were trusted in March. There were employees that we know of in major global organisations that you know everybody will know the name of, who had parts of their business where employees, were ha uh, employees had to leave their mobile phones in lockers outside of the office in February. And in March, those same employees were handed a laptop and asked to go and work from home on, you know, the broadband where the kids were playing on, you know, online computer games in the next room. So trust flipped, right? Every employee suddenly had to be trusted or organizations fell over. Now, I think the trust equation then comes back to now the immediate risk is if organizations, organizations start to withdraw that trust. Either they snatch it back or they progressively sort of you know, land grab it in small, small incursions. And I think this is the critical point here. I don't think it's as easy to say employees are or they're not trusted. I see the major risk at the moment is that the trust that was granted in order for organisations to navigate the crisis management phase of the pandemic 
is is progressively withdrawn. That's that for me is the bigger question. Interesting. Um, I'm very bullish on that. I speak to a lot of corporations and they sort of say, oh, we couldn't get them to do that at home. They'd have to come in. And you, you sort of go, why? Why Why is that? And they go, oh, we'd want to see what they're doing. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting, I think, that a lot of people are still, they, ha they have an idea of what people work because of what they saw before, but they haven't sort of necessarily looked at the P word, the productivity of actually they're really good at home and they can be trustworthy and that sort of thing. I think the, the argument is they just don't know and they don't want to be caught out. Do you think that's fair? It, it, it could be. I, I think also the, the sort of trust word is almost like it's got you know a big fat T in front of it, like the you know the productivity word with its big P is just a bit sort of you get hung up on the word. Um, and I think there are you know the sort of like a is it like the you know the Inuits? There's a was it with it? I think it's a bit of a myth that's been debunked. But there were fifty words for snow. I think there are about twenty words for snow. But um, I think it's the same with trust. That um, we've, there's an example, a, a client who's been looking at something that's very easy to measure from a productivity perspective with their developers. You know, you can measure lines of code and you can measure bugs within those lines of code. And they're two very good indicators of, you know, successful productivity. And, and what they found uh, for those developers who have, you know, ran home uh, enthusiastically to work remotely is that actually they do, in the same timeframes, produce more code when working remotely. But when that code is trying to stitch, uh, when they try and stitch it together as a sort of, you know, as a, as a total piece of work at the end of a sprint or a, or a piece of project based work, that they're finding it's more buggy than when those employees were working next to each other and having coffees and lunch with each other in the corporate workplace. So now, do we, is it about trust? Um, no, we trust them to work from home. We can see that they're producing more code when working from home. But when it comes to the ultimate you know, experience of that, that thing coming together as a piece of collaborative work, it is of a lower quality. Now, it's not about not trusting that they're not engaging with each other. I think it's something else. And so that's where I think we, you know, it, it's, trust needs to be a multicolored word. We've got to find different ways of establishing what's happening at the peripheries of the trust equation rather than just uh, labeling every sort of small error or small fault or small um, you know, disengagement as a, as a trust issue. I think there are more issues um, out there than just simply one that you'd label trust. No, I think I agree with that. I think trust is thrown around and misattributed to things. But again, I, I see that as the biggest problem of the workplace is that no one can say directly what they are actually thinking or feeling or doing. It's yeah. very weird. There's a lot of corporate speak out there. Um, let's talk about a few bad things um, before I let you off the hook. Um, Right now, people most most people in the world aren't better off. There are a few companies who have been public about lowering people's wages um, who now work at home full time. What's your view on this? Oh, again, another tough one. Um, I absolutely wouldn't agree with you know those types of measures. We would never do it as an organisation, and I don't think any of the organisations that we you know directly support would would come out with those types of gestures. Um, I think we we work with a more mature and more sensitive client base, thankfully, um, but. Equally, I think there are organisations who will be challenged. So, um, you know, what, what happens if an employee in a senior role suddenly says that they are, you know, announces that they're moving out of the, you know, the country that they are currently domiciled in um, because, the, you know, the remote working policy doesn't make it clear that they can't, you know, just, just stay at home more. They're going to also change their home location. And I, and I did hear from a, from a neighbour of mine one instant where, you know, a senior scientist said, well, actually, I'm thinking moving to Brazil. They're currently based on mainland Europe because it's significantly cheaper down there and the weather's better. They're like, okay, that's fine. But bear in mind your team are online, you know, 0830 to 1830, Europe, Central European time. 
and, and you're moving many hours away and they need your guidance when they need it and would like it, not, not you know, in your waking hours in a, in a different continent. And, and oh, by the way, if we employ senior scientists in Brazil, they're on a considerably lower salary than you are currently on in, in Central Europe. So I think HR teams are going to have a number of challenges that they're going to have to think through, navigate through of those types of really basic decisions that trusted people will start to make over the, you know, as we as we get into a sort of, you know, the long tail out of COVID. And I think it's those types of examples that will get covered in the press as as people take umbrage to whatever the, um, you know, the, the, the doctrine imposes on them afterwards. Um, but I'm not sure I would know how to deal with it. I'm not sure if one of my employees came and spoke to me and said they were moving to Australia, but they're, you know, central part of our UK client-based support team. What What would I think about that? So, you know, this is, we're only tiny, 40-odd people, but, um, you know, if you're 4,000 or 40,000 or 400,000 people globally, I, I yeah, I, I, I don't think of the complications that those HR teams are having to compute at the moment. I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you think about it, mo- the way the world works, and that sort of thing from a time zone perspective, is you can usually top and tail wherever you are. Um, that's just the logistics of most of the times where people live, right? I've worked in LA. I would call people certain times in the UK because I knew they were up and we would have time. And it wasn't all the time, but it did mean you have to have new strategies. And I I think it just showed this F word, flexibility, that a lot of the working world just simply isn't cut out for. They don't want to find new ways of working and that sort of stuff. And I, I, I think it's a shock to both sides, actually, that number one, the employee didn't get sort of everything they wanted or, you know, put it together and the also the company was like how dare you move away you know and that sort of thing that we wouldn't possibly wouldn't even remotely think about finding a solution to that we'll just find someone else those days seem to have gone for a lot of people because of the way that um people are resigning which you mentioned earlier the great resignation a lot of people have been calling it the great acceleration based on the data that is sort of out there i think it's kind of interesting times the way that people are starting to sort of figure out oh yeah my actual working day doesn't have to be this nine to five craziness i could do two bumps oh in in fact microsoft um said today um they're doing this triple peak thing have you read that yet yeah, I've I've seen some stuff around this, but also the four day week is you know is creeping in, isn't it, at the peripheries? Oh, you're not a fan of that, are you? Yeah, I'm, well, no, 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 I'm, I'm not a fan. I, I'm not not a fan of it. Um, I, I just think what what as as we have to do so often is call out the poor reporting of what the four day week represents because there are so many different models of a four day week. You know, there are a lot of people comparing apples with pears, and you know, not just grapefruits that are getting thrown in there for comparison. So I think it's all we ask for in any any analysis of those types of situations is. Make sure you're comparing like for like, so that if you, you know, if you are reporting benefits or risks, that they're fair and reasonably assessed. And I think um, that's that's where the the four day week is 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 going awry in terms of the various experiments around the world. You know, generally speaking, I'm neither for or against it. I think it needs to be appraised based on the role of the individual and the and and you know what it is that the organisation is doing uh, to, to to create revenues for its its shareholders or its stakeholders. But um, you know, the, it, it is just this sort of whole proposition, I think, at the moment about um, analysis is just I just wish people would slow down a little bit and do it a little bit more carefully and a little bit more thoughtfully. When it comes to the four day work week, what's the one that you're betting on? Um, I, I, I wouldn't say I would bet on any one of them being a forerunner because I think all of them have their complications. Um, and, I, and I think they you know, there are certain industries where to see it working well is 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 beyond my horizon view at the moment so um so i think if 
you know, there are some sectors where clearly it could work easily and very well and for the benefit of both the, the recipients of the service, but also the, those employees providing the service. Um, but there are others where I, I can't even work out how it would be operational for organizations to deliver that for their employees, that benefit for their employees, but not have to increase their, you know, their, their bottom line um, uh, customer costs by the 20 percent. Uh, drop in in working hours for the majority of the uh, the staff that they employ. So, um, I'm, I'm, I stay on the fence. I'm, I'm happy either way. If if people um, have some great successes and they're and they're accurately observed and recorded, then brilliant. I'll be I'll be shouting and applauding with them. But equally speaking, all I ask is that that we when we're appraising the 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 four day week generally, that we look at the different models and appraise each one for its benefits and its risks. Fair enough, fair enough. I think that takes a lot more sort of people a bit further on thinking and so that they can do their own research in which one's right for them. Um, final question before we do Desert Island tweets. What's the biggest red flag um, that you're seeing for employers that, that everyone's missing at the moment that's coming up? Oof, good question. Um, I think it is this, um, you know, the, 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 the hesitation, if you like, of, of, of what does the future look like and therefore what does the property programme look like for an organisation? Um, I, I, I think the um, some you know a handful more than a handful um, of great organisations have boldly stepped forward and are doing some exciting stuff. And um, the one it's almost like actually the green flag I'm going to give them rather than the red flag because this maybe talks to the other organisations not having recognised their red flags. The green flag, the green flags that where we see success are where organisations have adopted the approach that their technologists have taken for some time, which is a willingness to experiment and an acceptance of failing fast is good. Um, and I think if we could embed that type of psyche within the property uh, world in, and, and the approach that organisations take to their property futures, then I think actually the, the number of red flags raised would be uh, would be you know significantly less. Um, if we could, you know, if technologists can do it, why can't the property industry do it? Well, you could say because the average lease in the UK is 10 years and, you know, 12 or 13 in other parts of the world. But um, I don't think it stops us being agile and inventive and creative and responsive to, you know, to environments that are um, designed to adapt to organisations as they develop rather than, you know, some sort of, you know, if you like, monument to the architecture and the creativity of the designers who created it, that it should never change for the next 10 years. I think those are definitely, that's that's the thing that's dead. Um, you know, organisations will approach their workplace strategies much more flexibly in an agile way that makes them uh, more responsive to the circumstances around the organisation, not just the employees. Oh, I like that. Um, I lied, though. I've got one more question before we go in. Um, I'm asking everyone this season, what's your take on the metaverse and future of work? Are we going to be avatars floating between virtual offices or buying stock in Zoom still a good idea? Where, where do you want it to go, Tim? <laughs> do you know what? I, I, I'm, I, I think I always see myself as a modernizer and a, and a, a sort of futurist. Um, um, I, I can't see it uh, on the immediate horizon taking any dramatic difference. I think I think you you know the 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 time we share with each other um, in collective endeavour is still a physical thing. I think you you know you, you you there is an element to that that is difficult to describe, difficult to capture statistically or through research consistently. But there's something about that that I think um, you know people like myself will always value those moments of physical presence. It's uh, you know we can see it in our event program. We we do global event briefings on our data that's free to access for anybody who wants to listen in. 
historically, we went around the world and did it as a series of roadshows, burning huge amounts of carbon, you know, spending a fortune on on flight tickets and on venues to to, to present to big audiences. Um, and our amazing events manager Beth can deliver that in one day in three events, um, you know, to upwards of twelve thousand delegates in a single day. So why would we go back to the face to face? Because in the face-to-face events, somebody comes up and talks to you afterwards and they sooner or later become a customer because you develop a, you know, a, a trusted relationship based on a conversation over a glass of wine at the end of a long day. So I think you know, those aspects of the sort of visceral quality of collaboration, I still, as, a, as an ex-designer, I, I, maybe I'm pre-wired that way, but I still think there is an element to that, that all talk of the metaverse and, and, and a virtual uh, interaction with each other just can't can't quite replace yet in my uh, in my future gazing. As a conference organizer myself, I 100% agree with that sentiment. <laughs> it, and the T word came back up again. Trust. It's almost like it's synonymous synonymous with work. Um, okay, folks. We end as ever with Desert Island tweets, the part of mouthwash where the guest picks a tweet or two that has changed their mind or way of thinking in some way. Um, so if you turn your attention to the nest, uh, you'll actually see a tweet that I have picked because Tim's a gent and let me pick one today. Uh, and I picked this one from Sedition. It's a digital art database that's changed the way I worked. So now when I'm at home, I actually have a small projector that projects beautiful art on the wall uh, that I've never been exposed to. But thanks to the art pass that they have, I actually do get exposed to it. Um, It's chock full of different types of content and um, great to scroll through or even play at parties. It's very handy. Um, The one that's up there at the moment, uh, this is called uh, Bethnic Flora by um, Hotaru uh, Visual Gorilla. And some of his work is just amazing. Um, I recently added it to the end of the last TBD conference as well. And people said that they loved what I picked. So definitely check out uh, if you want to go through it, seditionart.com or one word, seditionart.com. Um, right. That's a wrap on episode four of season four. My thanks to Tim Oldman for giving us the download on where the office and world of work is right now and where it's going. Um, sign up to the newsletter over at leesmanindex.com um, and work with them to make your workplace a better one. Any final words of advice for the listeners, Tim? No, just, just thanks for having me. And, uh, and and I would say to anybody listening, just be open-minded, be creative, co-create your future uh, strategies with your employees. And ultimately, uh, you, you know, you'll have a better, better experience for everybody involved. Love that. Nice sentiment as well. Um, up next on Mouthwash is Simon Alexander Ong, fresh from his stage uh, debut on TBD this year. Simon is a coach, a business strategist, and his first book, Energize, is all about to drop. Um, we're going to be talking about burnout and a lot more besides. I urge you to tune in. If you want to not miss a moment of Mouthwash, just head over to mouthwash.norby.live and you'll get a text so you don't miss a minute. Mouthwash is produced by Suze and the big team at Big Tent Media. As always, everything Mouthwash, even the text alerts can be found over at mouthwashshow.com. Whole of the guests are there as well, so check them out. I'm a firm believer that you do not remember the days, we remember the moments, and I hope this has been one for you. I'm Paul Armstrong, this has been Mouthwash. Listen in again soon for more fresh chat that leaves you more confident. Thanks for listening to Mouthwash. Please share it in a network you trust and check out our sponsors. Season four of Mouthwash was sponsored by Workplace by Meta. The easy to use features at Workplace help people work together in new ways. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. That's workplace.com forward slash human. Have a great day.